Hello, I'm Isabel Trick, and I'm an Associate Director in the Global Macro Team at the Global Council. And this is the February edition of our podcast series, The Global Months Ahead. At the beginning of each month, I get together with colleagues from across GC to delve deeper into three of the most interesting events and developments taking place in the months ahead. You can expect a focus on issues with broader geopolitical or economic importance, and we will try to make sure that you know more than your friends and your colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. For today's edition, we will focus on the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Nigeria's presidential elections, and the EU's new industrial plan, which will be discussed at the upcoming European Council this month. So first off, we want to talk about Ukraine. On February 24th, we are going to see the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And actually also another, uh, a couple of other dates in the diary this month that relate to Ukraine. We have the coming into force of the EU's embargo on oil products on February the 5th and the EU-Ukraine summit on February the 3rd. And to touch on all of these different topics, I'm joined by Alexander van der Wusten. He's an associate in our CEE in Russia practice. So Alexander, let's dive right in. Um, we've seen in the news in the last few days that Ukraine is expecting a certain level of escalation around that first anniversary. So what is your take on the current state of the conflict? Hi, Isabel. Thanks. Thanks very much. Um, so let me first give a, give a, a small overview of yeah, exactly where we are in the conflict and especially on the, on the battlefield. Uh, so um, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, the final part of last year, has seemingly stalled. Um, so um, the southern region of Kherson, so large, par- large, large parts of that have been liberated and other parts of the occupied southern regions as well. The, the heavy battles now are focused in the, in the Donbass. So we've heard names like Bakhmut uh, feature in the media. So the, the most intensive fighting has been taking place there. Um, Russian mercenary groups are, are, are fighting there. Uh, but um, yeah, following the mobilization September in Russia, Russia has also to some extent managed to kind of pluck the you know the deficit of manpower it was it was facing from summer onwards. So now it is able to make uh, some small tactical wins there in the Donbass, but it's unclear whether these tactical wins will matter for the for the larger for the larger conflict. Um, on the other hand, there are persistent threats about about a new mobilization wave in, in Russia, and and Russia. Uh, preparing possibly a, a major offensive in the spring to capture the, the whole of uh, Ukraine's eastern Donbass region. Um, or in the shorter term, um, some renewed attacks on, on Kiev on the north of Ukraine from, from Belarus. There's also some movements there. Um, but yeah, at the same time, we, we've heard these kind of statements before from, uh, from, from Russian officials, and it is still, still very, very unclear whether Russia will be able to sustain the, the the manpower, the firepower, whether Russia will will logistically be able to prepare and execute such an offensive. Um, um, but yeah, of course, the the the, the course of the war and the, and the success of of any renewed attack or, or offensive will depend uh, largely also on on the level of support for Ukraine. You've given me a really interesting point to dig in deeper because. It sounds like you're talking about a possible major Russian offensive in eastern Ukraine, worries about direct attacks on Kiev, but equally questions about Russia's ability to execute these plans. But what you've pointed out here at the very end is probably what has been really dominating political debate in Europe, especially over the last month, 
which is this question about support for Ukraine and especially the delivery of tanks from Germany and the US. Do you have a view on how, how that might impact the, the conflict and the situation um, generally? Let me just zoom out a little bit here. So it, it seems that support for Ukraine is, is as strong as ever. So yes, if you alluded to, we've seen uh, a, a kind of a breakthrough on tank deliveries following the, the Rammstein uh, summit uh, last week. Um, and there's now also be pos possibly a shift with regards to sending fighter jets uh, to Ukraine, which was completely out of the limits uh, before. Um, so in general, it seems that whereas there was first some sort of reluctance on the West side to send heavier weapons to Ukraine as not to provoke Russia, that caution now seems to, to, to be gone. And during the Davos meeting um, earlier last month, we already some saw kind of shift in rhetoric where even the most cautious commentators um, are beginning to make more assertive statements saying that the only way out of the conflict is, is for Ukraine to win the war. Uh, for example, Henry Kissinger said something along these lines, um, which, is, which is very interesting and, and, and a very clear shift. Um, but on the other hand, um, public opinion matters, right, for sustained support. So we already see uh, the public in the U.S. shifting. Um, well, since the spring of 2022, the number of Americans who would like to limit aid to Ukraine has quadrupled. So, yeah, not only Republican folks, also um, um, these, these are Democratic voters that are largely thinking now in this way. Um, and in Germany, the majority of voters think it is important for the war to end quickly through peace negotiations rather than Ukrainian victory. So, um, yeah, nevertheless, for the, for the coming months, support is still high enough. Uh, and, um, um, yeah, we can expect more heavy arms deliveries. Um, um, and there's also the feeling of necessity among policymakers. So even if they have to tread carefully, like German Chancellor Scholz, um, and they cannot openly commit to, you know, tank and heavy arms deliveries because of public opinion, uh, they will still do their best behind the scenes to, to make that happen. That is definitely a really interesting shift compared to where we were a year ago when this conflict started. I don't think we could have um, at the time seen that sort of political momentum behind tanks and possibly even fighter jet deliveries, but equally um, an interesting contrast there with the shift in public opinion. I just quickly want to touch on the other two dates that I mentioned. So we've got the EU-Ukraine summit coming up. My broad understanding is that we're probably not going to see much about the um, actual acceleration of Ukraine's um, prospective EU membership, but that we might get some progress on other um, aspects, including reconstruction. What's your view on, on that? This is, um, of course, Ukraine's uh, reconstruction is, is, a, is a kind of separate track of support for, for Ukraine. So. Well, it's clear that Ukraine needs military and financial aid right now um, as the war um, keeps going. Uh, in, the, in the longer term, it's also clear that massive post-war reconstruction effort um, needs to needs to take place. Already over half a trillion dollars, by some of estimation. Um, but um, but uh, a lot of money is needed basically to get Ukraine back on its feet. Um, and there seems to be a clear consensus that Ukraine's future lies in the EU. And then the EU will have to play a key role in this uh, post-war reconstruction setting. Um, um, and Ukraine's EU integration, which properly started with the granting of the EU candidacy status to Ukraine uh, last year, is the first or, or one of the first steps in this in this long process. And this process, and especially the, the time frame, that's what's going to be discussed at this summit. So Ukrainian officials are 
are pushing for a quick accession um, um, and they want they've said this they want to be a full EU member they want Ukraine to be a full EU member in two years time um, uh, the Baltic states their allies and, and 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 Poland are very likely to support this but the old guard um, yeah uh, yeah these are France and Germany they might think differently they are basically wary of speeding up Ukraine's membership process and and they are concerned that Ukraine and Poland with a you know, combined population of 80 million could unite to rival Germany as a political force in the, in the European Council. And also some member states argue that Kiev would be an excessive drain on EU on the EU, EU budget. So in this way, the summit, like you alluded to already, the summit is expected to pour some cold water over Kiev's membership uh, ambitions, so to say. Um, and it's likely that the the, the summit that at the summits the, the states will the EU members will stress the need for Ukraine to speed up its political and anti-corruption reforms, align with EU rules, and kind of go through the normal accession process, which could still take many many years. Um, but at the same time, there are some progress that could be made on on visa-free regime for industrial goods, uh, also the suspension of customs duties on, on Ukrainian exports. Um, um, an active kind of active progress on joining the single euro payments area uh, payment scheme and the inclusion also of Ukraine into the EU's mobile roaming area and moreover the EU and Ukraine are expected to sign a partnership to boost cooperation on renewable energy and hydrogen so this is also a very interesting political area to be, be watched just a final question before I let you go I like your quick take on sanctions so we've got the EU's um new embargo on Russian oil products like diesel that's coming into force on the 5th. And of course, the EU is going to hope that this is going to have a real impact on Russian revenues. Do you have a sense of what else is coming or might be coming on the sanctions front? Yeah, last year, um, the EU, US and UK already introduced a ban on the insurance and transport of Russian oil above uh, $60 a barrel, aligned with US G7 proposals. And from February 5th, um, there, uh, yeah, the oil sanctions basically will be broadened. So the EU will join the UK and US in banning seaborne imports of Russian diesel and, and other oil products. Um, however, on, on this particular side of the sanctions, so EU countries are still unable, as we speak, to strike a deal on, 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 um, on this measure. Well, the deadline is just a few days away, but the commission proposed to enforce a price cap of under dollars per barrel on, on products like diesel, which trade above uh, the price of, of crude oil, and $45 for those that trade at a discount to crude. But Poland and the three Baltic countries, they have pushed for lower caps for the existing G7 price cap on Russian crude oil to be lowered from the current $60 per barrel. So you already see here contentions, kind of issues, debates among the among the among e at least the EU countries about how to take the, the sanctions forward. Um, um, this will continue to be a problem um, or measures that, 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 that might be implemented next. But it's already also a broader question of what else could be sanctioned. That is a very, very open question. So um, the, especially when you think about what the effect, uh, what the effect of the sanctions has been so far. Um, the effect has, by some estimates, yeah, being quite uh, uh, limited, the jury is still out on that. Um, but um, I, yeah, according to some reports, Russia is already building up an alternative gray fleet to um, circumvent the price gap. Um, and this, um, this is 
already going to be a problem for, for the effectiveness of any new measures that it might be implemented going forward. So um, lots of debates and lots of unresolved issues are still are still uh, are still on the agenda and, and we still have to watch what what kind of effective measures could be could be introduced vis a vis Russia. So yeah, the jury is still out. On February 25th, Nigerians will go to the polls and vote for their new president and parliament. Or at least I would say that is the plan because it's definitely worth highlighting right here and right now that the last three elections were all postponed, um, sometimes just within hours um, before voting. So keep that in mind um, when we talk about the date here. But to talk to me about that election is my colleague Ed King. He is an associate in the Global Macro team who has been working really closely with me on the Nigeria coverage. So Ed, this year is actually the year that is going to see a lot of elections in big emerging and frontier markets. We've got Pakistan, Argentina, Turkey, Bangladesh, and the DRC, and we might not be able to actually cover all of them in the podcast, but we really did want to cover Nigeria. So tell me why Nigeria is something that we should should really be paying attention to. I want to start by highlighting the pure scale of these elections. Nigeria is the fifth largest democracy in the world. And there are a whopping 93 million registered voters this year. That's 16 million more voters than the other 14 West African states combined. So it's almost the equivalent of running an election for the whole West Africa. The manner in which the elections are carried out is therefore extremely important for democracy, particularly given the history of electoral violence that you alluded to. It could have a real impact on the pathway to democracy both in West Africa, but also around the world in an era where democracy is increasingly facing challenges. But beyond that, Nigeria is supposed to be one of Africa's economic powerhouses. Under President Buhari, the economy has failed to live up to its full potential. But a change in leadership could lead to a change in fortune. In this era of energy diversification, Nigeria has an opportunity to become a key oil exporter and improved revenues could then contribute to addressing the entrenched issues of poverty and inequality. So who's in charge is not only vital for Nigerians, but also for wider economic growth across the continent. Absolutely, I fully agree. The scale of these elections is absolutely mind-boggling. Over 90 million registered voters, so just getting that organized in a smooth fashion is going to be quite a challenging task. Um, so what is also particularly interesting is that we've just had two terms of President Buhari. And after two terms, that is the um, term limit. So we can't have him on the ballot again. But that then means for the first time in 20 years, he's not going to be on the ballot. Instead, we've got 18 different um, official presidential candidates. But I think there's really only a few that we should be paying attention to. Um, Ed, what do you think are the key front runners who we should be keeping in mind as we head into this election? Yeah, that's right. So although there are 18 presidential candidates, there are only really three that matter. Um, firstly, there's Bola Tinubu. Tinubu is the candidate from the ruling party, the All Progress Congress, APC. He won the primaries last year and has been handed the party's flag by outgoing President Buhari. Tanubu is a Muslim from southwest Nigeria, and we'll come on to why this is important a bit later on. The second candidate is Atiku Abubakar, 
representing the main opposition party, People's Democratic Party, PDP. Abu Bakr has run unsuccessfully for president of Nigeria five times, so he'll be hoping it's his sixth time lucky. He's a Muslim from the north. But this year, there's a surprise third challenger. His name is Peter Obi from the Labour Party, and he's a Christian from the southeast. I think that is really quite a remarkable story in and of itself because since um, Nigeria returned to um, multi-party democracy in 1999, it has really usually been a two-horse race. And that Peter Oibi has managed to capture the attention of um, people, of young voters, but also of the international press in that way, has been quite remarkable. And I think part of that is about how he has kept topping pre-election polls. Can you tell me a bit more about Peter Oibi and what's been going on with him and with his candidacy? Absolutely. Yeah, so Peter, Peter Obi, as you say, has emerged as a pretty powerful force ahead of these elections and leads several opinion polls. Although his Labour Party remains relatively unknown, it clearly offers an alternative to the two parties that have dominated Nigerian politics, as you say, since 1999. He's proving particularly popular among the large Igbo population, Many Igbos have accused successive Nigerian governments of marginalizing them and hope that Obi will rise to power so that the southeast, where most of the Igbo population live, would see greater development. This would then help counter the pull of succession groups like the indigenous people of Biafra and therefore strengthen both national cohesion and security. As a result, Many disenchanted people from the region are putting their faith in him for the return of a true democracy. Obi is also adored by many young Nigerians who call themselves obedience. And it's not just because he's comparatively younger than the other candidates at a sprightly 61 years old. His messages of prudence and accountability have enhanced his social media presence. He's also been engaging his supporters, albeit sometimes bordering on populism, with powerful phrases like, it's time to take your country back, and this election is the old against the new. But what I'm keen to know, as I'm sure our listeners are, is does Peter Obi really stand a chance? How do you see the election panning out? Well, yeah, I guess that's the, that's the million dollar question. I think what is probably important to highlight, first of all, is that polling has not been particularly reliable in Nigeria in the past. And even now, if we're looking at some of the polls, um, I don't think we can necess necessarily expect that a pre-election poll victory is going to neatly translate into an election victory for Obi. Um, maybe just a couple of things about the polls. In many polls, there were relatively large numbers of undecided voters um, who just didn't know who they were going to vote for, which then makes um, the outcome much harder to predict. And one survey that's been cited a lot, I think it was originally commissioned by Bloomberg, highlighted that 72% would support Obi. And that sounds like a massive number, but it was actually only 72% of decided voters. And that survey was distributed via a smartphone app. And you said that young voters are particularly um, the people who are supporting Obi. And while they did claim that was a representative survey, if it is via a smartphone app, you should probably take that with a pinch of salt and really think about how representative that can truly be. 
Um, but that does not mean that uh, Peter Orby doesn't have momentum. He definitely does. The question is whether he can translate that momentum into actually getting people to vote for him on the 25th, because the last election turnout in 2019 was very, very low. We're talking about 34.7% at the time. And so really it will be about which party manages to get people out to show up at the polls. And while, of course, a huge chunk of young people are excited about Oibi and people from the southeast, he is running for a party, the Labour Party, as you've said, that doesn't have the structures and funds to compete with the APC and the PDP and currently only has three seats um, in Congress. So the short answer is um, I'm not going to make any predictions because there are really a lot of ways this could play out. You mentioned where the religion, uh, you mentioned the religions of the different candidates and where they're from. Orbi is the only Christian candidate, so that could mean that he gathers a lot of the Christian votes, but the Muslim vote is split between the other candidates. But equally, both Orbi and Tinubu are from the south, so they might split the southern vote, whereas um, all the northern votes for Abu Bakr, which could really work in his favor. Um, the only thing I might be uh, willing to predict is that we, because we have this first three-horse race, we might actually see a runoff for the first time in Nigeria's democratic um, election history if neither of those three candidates manages to win in the first round. And that would mean we see a second round runoff between the top two candidates in three weeks' time. Okay, and we should see the results of that first election within about three days, is that right? Yeah, about three days after the election has finished, um, kind of as the voting has wrapped up, that's when we should see the first results. For our next segment, we are looking at the European Council that's um, taking place. I'm going to start right away again. For our next segment, we are looking at the European Council taking place from the 9th to the 10th of February. EU leaders are getting together in Brussels, and we know that there's going to be one thing top of the agenda, which is European competitiveness and a new industrial plan that has been announced by Ursula von der Leyen during the World Economic Forum in Davos. To talk about this, I have two colleagues joining me from Brussels. First off, we have Christina Isaac. She's a senior associate from the Global Macro team. And second, we have Tom White, who's a group director at GC and who leads our whole European team and has overall responsibility for all of Global Council's work with EU institutions and EU member state governments in the EU. So, Christina, I'd like to start this with you. As I mentioned, the new EU Green Deal Industrial Plan was announced by President von der Leyen during the World Economic Forum in Davos. What is it and how has it come about? Why are we talking about this now? Hi, Isabel. Thank you very much for inviting me to the podcast again. Um, the new industrial plan aims to revamp European industrial policy to boost its competitiveness to enter the green technology race. Major economies like the US and China currently spend massively on subsidies to clean energy. Uh, the EU has already had an ambitious green deal, which later got also paired with the priorities of the next generation EU. This was a 750 billion euro worth pandemic recovery fund, which was financed by the first ever common borrowing within the European uh, Union. However, two major shifts have happened in the last year that affected the European economy's future trajectory. What are these? Firstly, after we bounced back relatively well from the impact of the pandemic, the war in Ukraine has truly unleashed the energy crisis we have been experiencing in the last year. The EU's relationship due to the war changed with Russia, and the era of, era of cheap Russian energy also ended. 
This has been a big blow to industrial production, which has relied majorly on fossil fuels and specifically cheap fossil fuels from Russia. As industrial production has been falling month after month in Europe, voices, of, voices in Europe have been growing louder and louder to address industrial policy more comprehensively than just the patchwork of temporary state aid frameworks which we have put up during the crises. Second, and most importantly and most recently, the EU initiative is largely a response to a US policy. In the summer of 2022, the US came out with a federal law, the Inflation Reduction Act, or as it is referred to, the ERA. In a nutshell, besides the social aspects of the law, the ERA offers hefty state aid in return for stringent local content requirements. In the EU, it rung the alarm that the energy-abundant US could poach green energy investment from Europe. So it seems that besides fighting the energy crisis and trying to transform the economy to become greener, more digitalized and more competitive, the EU must also reconsider how to do this entire thing. Its approach, what we have coined previously in the, EU, in the EU, open strategic autonomy, is now under fire and the bloc might be forced to reposition itself within the framework of its alliances too. As the first step towards this new direction, we will see what the Commission will publish, uh, what sh the Commission thinks should be done as this new industrial policy communication is scheduled to come up this week. Very interesting. So it's a mixture of European industry being under threat because the energy puzzle that has so far underpinned a lot of European industry is changing significantly due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And we have the response to the US Inflation Reduction Act, which I think the US has put really significant money on the table, something like $360 billion in potential subsidies. So it, it makes a lot of sense, I think, that the um, EU is looking to respond. Do we have any sense already of what is in this new Green Deal industrial plan? Did we, um, did we get any sense from the EU how they might want to um, target and achieve this? Based on what we have uh, known so far, the Commission's upcoming strategy will likely rest on the following four pillars. First, there will be uh, changing the regulatory environment, which will be done by a new Net Zero Industry Act. It is mainly to speed up clean tech production. This pillar also focuses on streamlining different regulations, which include both upcoming ones and those that are already in the pipeline and they cover mainly issues around raw materials and chips and will affect the entire supply chain. For all this, the EU must also find the finance to implement the finances to implement the policy priorities. Currently, this most probably means mainly cutting red tape, simplifying bureaucratic procedures, for example, to distribute state aid faster within the EU. But also, options also include offering tax credits and using different tax break models. Although there are plans for a European sovereign fund to boost clean tech investments, besides redirecting already existing funds, there has been no announcement about channeling in any fresh money, which can basically trigger some tension within the EU. Um, currently, companies also experience an EU-wide shortage of skilled labor, which is very uh, difficult to fight. Therefore, the third element is to build up the skills that needed by the industry to perform in the future. And lastly, the Commission plans to zoom in on how the EU handles its trade relations and will also focus more on how it conducts its free trade agreements, where it will be more important for the EU to keeping the level playing field against China and the US.
Okay, so that sounds like four different pillars you said. Regulatory changes, possible changes to how um, green tech is financed, though it doesn't sound like we quite know how, building up skills and revamping the EU's trade relations or rethinking its, um, its free trade network. That's really helpful for us to, I think, understand what the EU is thinking about. But as we all know, it's never quite as easy when you have to handle the Commission and 27 different countries. So, Tom, I'd like to bring you in here and talk about the upcoming European Council. What do you think we should expect um, in terms of government positions, Commission positions in the run-up to and at the Council? Hi, Isabel, and thanks again for having me on podcast. Um, Well, as, as Christina was saying, there's a huge amount of policy to get our heads around here from skills and areas that have been traditionally outside really the remit of, of the EU, as well as thinking again about some of the core policy tools like subsidy regimes and trade policy. Um, but underpinning all of this, which I think is behind your question, is really a debate about power as much as about policy. It's about the EU's power in the world, its attractiveness to investment, its ability to access the raw materials and the markets that it needs to in the industries of the future. Um, it's also about power within the EU, where we have seen quite a significant shift over the last few years um, away from what we might call economic orthodoxy and towards economic intervention, because we really have a generation of leaders in Europe who see and have seen over the last few years that government intervention with business and supporting businesses financially is actually quite popular and is well received by citizens because as we saw through the pandemic they've benefited from that directly um, which is quite a different experience from that of the previous generation who went through the financial crisis and bailing out banks and really facing a bit of a public backlash against that kind of intervention so this is a very interesting initiative both from a policy perspective but also from the perspective of politics and and the power balance within Europe and in the world. And all of that is going to be coming to the top, really, of the agenda at the European Council. Um, so the Commission's communication is going to set out the four pillars. Um, leaders will have an initial debate about whether it's on the right tracks. And then there will be a um, further set of concrete initiatives developed over the rest of the year to really turn this strategy into legislation and into spending instruments. Um, when we're thinking about what we will see over over these few weeks, um, I think it's important to look first at, um, at Thierry Breton, the Commissioner for the Internal Market. Um, he may end up attending the Council to present the proposals. Um, more likely they'll be presented by the President herself. Um, but Breton has really been holding the pen on this communication. And he is... Um, or, and with the support of his political um, backers in, in Paris, um, he's been one of the drivers of this um, agenda on open strategic autonomy and technological sovereignty, and really the idea that the EU needs to be less naive towards its relationships with um, the US and China in the, the great competition for future um, successful technologies, companies, and and job creation. And really, the interesting thing about Breton, though, is that although he has the authority over the internal market dimension, so the first dimension, looking at the um, regulatory enablers, the role of the single market, um, 
what he's actually most interested in is the spending side. And this is where he faces some, um, some headwinds because if he wants to reform the EU subsidy regime, he has to overcome the competition commissioner, Margrethe Vestager, who's also the executive vice president. And he also has to overcome the concerns of smaller member states that if you have a free for all on subsidies, then most of the money will be injected into the economy by the largest economies in, in France and Germany. Um, so he faces a headwind there. He also faces a headwind of promising any new spending, because of course, we're only, we're less than halfway through the current multi-annual financial framework. So any new spending instruments need to go back to the member states to get their checkbooks out. That sounds like a lot to achieve in the next few weeks. And some very meaty topics, especially the question around subsidies and state aid, I think will certainly be um, something that will really get the uh, get the negotiators and the EU leaders um, going as they get their teeth into this proposal, this plan by the European Commission. If we're looking beyond the month of February, how do you think this is going to shape um, the year ahead? And do you see any particularly challenges that the EU might face in actually implementing all of this? The kind of challenges that are faced in the short term are challenges within the community in Brussels. So the policymakers, um, the negotiators and the expert advisors. And I think we can be fairly confident that at some point there will be an agreement of, of a kind on what the strategy consists of. I think we will see some um, scaling back of the ambitions around subsidy just because um, actually if you want to change the EU subsidy regime, You've got to change the EU treaty, which requires unanimity and various other thresholds to be met. Um, what they can do is look at the exemptions that are applied to the subsidy regime. And I think we could see that expanded to covering some particular types of strategic technologies. Um, you know, for, so further liberalization in the ability to subsidize, say, hydrogen or carbon capture and storage or, or even electric vehicles. Um, there'll also be... Um, some constraint, as I mentioned before, around uh, getting any new money out of the member states who, although they've had a, um, um, a better time over the last few years of financing their deficits, you know, we're not in a sort of 2011-2012 phase, um, there are still some concerns we could go back to that, that period. So the member states will want to make sure that any money that is being spent is being properly accounted for and that they're not giving the Commission a, a blank cheque to um, provide corporate welfare. Um, but I, I would say that all of that will be um, resolved at some point, just because this has a lot of momentum. Um, the president has invested her own political capital in it with her speech. Um, and clearly, there is a need to respond to what's happened in the US and China, um, because at one level, um, if uh, there is a made in China and a made in the US, um, then there needs to be some kind of made in Europe. The challenge will just be to make sure that it is targeted and i'm sure this is what uh, vice president Fastai will be looking at is it is it genuinely for additional activity you know, how how are you going to have checks and balances that mean you're not subsidizing things that are going to happen anyway um so there'll be some some additionality tests and various steps like that um the challenge though and this is a bigger challenge which um comes in the implementation which is that even if you reach that agreement that consensus in brussels um, you've then got to actually turn this into intervention. You've got to implement it in the real world. And I would just highlight two big elements that are going to be difficult there. The first of which is simply making sure that you maintain the confidence of financial markets. Um, we saw in uh, the UK in the autumn 
that actually markets patience is not infinite for um, unfunded spending pledges. And so if Europe does really start to try and match the US with some of the numbers you were talking about in the hundreds of millions, um, sorry, hundreds of billions, then you know, are they going to get some kind of pushback from markets? Might we see um, perhaps not German debt coming under threat, but perhaps again, Italy or um, or Spain or or other member states that, that are um, more vulnerable. Um, so that's, I think, one real world constraint. And European leaders will be more worried about that perhaps than the Commission. Um, so that'll be a feature at the European Council. But of course, the second aspect, which is what I always found in, in government when you're trying to spend new money is, you know, can you actually find the projects? Can you actually um, reach agreement with the other stakeholders and partners that the money should be spent in this way under these terms? Um, do you have the expertise to evaluate projects? You know, there are all sorts of, of challenges and sometimes um, the pressure is on to get the money out the door um, and then you get money wasted and then the whole project can come back into question. So I think we're at the start of a very interesting journey, um, but we are only at the start. This brings us to the end of our February episode of the Global Month Ahead podcast. Considering that February is such a short month, it's definitely going to be a busy one. We've got a really crucial month for Ukraine as we do the first anniversary of Russia's invasion. We've got a harder than ever to predict election in Nigeria, which might have to go into a second round. And we've got really concerted EU efforts, competitive with the US and China, if they can overcome both internal tensions and some real life patient challenges. As always, if you, your business, or your investors are exposed to any of what we've discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. You can find the contact details of our presenters and our different sectoral teams on our website at www.global-council.com or via the link in our podcast notes. Sorry, thank you, Alexander, Christina, Tom, and Ed, and thanks to you for listening. It was beautiful.